Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Inspiring you to bring God back into the conversation of the day. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. Well, good morning. Let us be praying this morning for our neighbors in California, Utah, Nevada, Arizona, Idaho, Wyoming, and Montana. Wildfires raging in all of those states. I'm going to highlight uh, Oregon today. Um, The fires in Oregon are being described in what I will call apocalyptic terms. Um. You are going to hear people describing, uh, and and particularly if you look at pictures of what's going on in Oregon, um, there there are pictures posted last night. Um, it was obviously dark, but it is glowing orange as far as the eye can see in every direction. And I got to tell you, if it's glowing orange or it's glowing red in some pictures, in as far as the eye can see in every direction, um, you're surrounded by fire. And I want you to just consider that for just a moment. Um, there's a there's an opportunity to actually see what it would look like to be in a place consumed by fire um, because of the of the pictures that are coming out of some of these towns in Oregon. It's unusual for the Washington Post. One of the, you know, I'm just going to describe it as certainly one of the premier secular um, media outlets in our country. It is unusual for them um, very early on in an article to call for prayer. But three paragraphs in this morning, the Washington Post uh, is um, repeating the tweets, printing them for the world to see. A resident of Medford named Jeff Carpenter. Uh, tweeted out, and the Washington Post then reprinted. Pray for Medford. We are on fire. Um, So let's pray for Medford, and let's pray for Jeff Carpenter, and let's pray for other residents like him um, and other towns like Medford and other states like Oregon that are on fire tonight. And let's be mindful of... um, just how fragile and precious human life is. And let me remind you that nothing, nothing, nothing it rises to the value of your life. And so if you are in a place that is under an evacuation order of any kind, please heed that evacuation order. Please heed it if there's a hurricane coming. Please heed it if there's a tornado coming. Please heed it if there's a fire coming. Um, so let's be lifting up our Western neighbors today uh, in in prayer, and let's let's acknowledge together um, that their recovery from this is going to take a very long time. Also, want to lift up a family in Utah. We talked yesterday with Dr. Stephen Grisevich about the particular challenges that families with children who have special needs are facing right now. 
one of uh, those sort of categories of special needs are children with autism. And children with autism do not respond well to changes in routine. Um, they also, they, I mean, they like routine very much. And so um, this boy, who's 13 years old, um, did not respond well yesterday when his mom went back to the work for the very first time in a number of months. Um, and he became angry and very agitated. She actually called the police to come to their home to help. She was uh, she was anticipating that the police would help her de-escalate the situation and potentially um, take her son to the hospital. Well, they did end up uh, needing to call an ambulance for her son to be taken to the hospital because the police shot him multiple times. And so he is in the hospital recovering from multiple gunshot wounds. But let's be lifting up this 13-year-old autistic boy. Let's be lifting up his mom. Let's be lifting up the challenges that families like this are facing right now and face every day. And the challenges that the police face when they are called upon to intervene um, with children who have disabilities and particular challenges related to um, emotional development. And let's find a better way. We have to find a better way. Mark Caleb Smith is up next. He and I are going to talk about the election home stretch. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. We'll be right back. Dr. Mark Caleb Smith is a professor at Cedarville University. He also blogs at Bereans at the Gate. You can find that at BereansAtTheGate.com. Mark, welcome back. Hey, Carmen. How are you doing today? I'm well, thank you. Let's talk about the election home stretch and in particular the upcoming debates. Yeah, there's a lot to discuss, right? And this thing's kind of unfolding right in front of us. Um, the debates are usually are pivotal, pivotal moments in a campaign. And I suspect they'll be the same thing here. What are your expectations? Just in general, what are your, um, you know, I mean, like I, I remember sort of the stalking behavior of, uh, of <laughs> Donald Trump behind Hillary Clinton. Right. And I got to tell you, um, I'm, I, I, I would not have stood there like she did. Like I had to turned around and I'd have faced him. Like I, so I guess there's a part of me that wonders how it's different with two men on the stage um, there's not going to be a woman on the stage uh, in terms of the presidential debate this time around. Um, I just, you know, things like that. Like, what are some of your expectations in terms of maybe their manner toward one another? Yeah, I don't know if you remember back in 2000, uh, Al Gore and George W. Bush debated. And Al Gore actually did a similar thing where he kind of moved into George W. Bush's physical space and uh, it was kind of an odd moment in the debate because Gore was clearly trying to destabilize and intimidate Bush at some level. And Bush just kind of turned to him and smirked and then just kind of kept on going. Uh, and people laughed at it. And I think it was an interesting moment. Uh, I think Biden is going to try to do something similar with Trump to needle him and probably get him to be a little bit angry uh, and really to, to sort of undermine his own uh, arguments. Trump clearly is going to try to pressure Biden and reveal that he's not fit to be president and try to argue that he's just not uh, not functioning at a high enough capacity to be president of the United States. And so it's going to be, it, I, I think they're probably going to actually uh, be pretty aggressive with each other. 
And it's going to be, uh, we'll see how the first one goes. And that'll probably set the tone for the next two as they try to figure out what worked and what didn't work from the first one. All right. So now we're going to, uh, we're, we're going to play a little game. You are now a moderator of an upcoming presidential debate. Um, what questions is moderator Mark Caleb Smith going to ask the presidential candidates in a debate? <laughs> uh, this is a great, it's a great exercise. And when you asked me to think about this, it was, it was good to sit down and sort of noodle through my own expectations. Um, I, the first question I would ask for Joe Biden, probably no surprise to you, but um, something along these lines, the Roman Catholic Church of which you count yourself a member, is against abortion and same-sex marriage. Um, Virginia and New York have either passed or attempted to pass fairly radical abortion laws. Um, you know, would you vote for these laws, and why or why not? And is the church you're part of wrong? Um, mm. you know, I, I, think, I think Democrats have a real difficult time uh, with this kind of question, because it puts their faith in this sort of issue, I think, at a, in, in some tension, and it, it makes it kind of tough. Um, I think Biden has plenty of answers here. Uh, he's been asked this question a lot over time. He has plenty of answers. Um, he's opposed to abortion personally. He always says that. Uh, he believes it should be legal, though, in most cases. Um, he thinks He thinks that he's personally consistent as a Catholic, uh, but he's not willing to take the Catholic Church's approach and sort of impose it on other people, um, which, you know, I, I can understand where that comes from, uh, but I think that leaves them in some difficult places, morally speaking. And certainly that's not going to be the kind of answer that evangelicals and other people who may be willing to give Biden a look uh, are going to want to hear. All right. So tee up a question for President Trump. Uh, President Trump, there's so many directions you can go with President Trump. Um and, you know, when you when you think about asking him a question, I think it's it's a little bit dangerous in the sense that he's not really going to necessarily answer your question. And you have to think through how he might respond to kind of the idea that you put in front of him and, and run with it. Um, <clears throat> but the question I would have for him is you've served as president of the United States for the last four years and as leader of the Republican Party, you know, the party of Lincoln, Teddy Roosevelt, Dwight Eisenhower and Ronald Reagan. What do you think of their legacies and how do you compare your own first term in office? Now, hmm. I, I, think, I think what this highlights is the, the real tension between President Trump as a president and even as a candidate and with the party's history. Um, I think you can make an argument that he's trying to remake the Republican Party and he's trying to turn it into something completely different in some ways. Um, but, you know, I don't know if Donald Trump necessarily thinks quite in those terms. You know, I don't think he sits down and thinks, OK, I need to change the Republican Party. I'm not sure that really is how he processes information. Uh, but my guess is he would say something along the lines of these are all great Republicans, um, great men, great presidents. Um, but if he were sort of more of a traditional politician, he might say, you know, every president deals with their own set of problems. You know, Lincoln had a civil war to deal with. Roosevelt had a shifting economic base in America. Reagan had the Cold Cold War and Eisenhower had the Cold War to worry about. We're confronting a different situation. And so we have to do what we do, you know, in light of the world as, as it presents itself to us, not in light of what the party's done in the past. Um, but I think so Republicans... I, and, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah. So uh, 
I'd like to respond uh, on behalf of President Trump here. I'm going to rely on his own words about himself. Um, He likened himself to Lincoln, actually fairly recently in July. Uh, And just yesterday, he likened himself to Roosevelt. Um, So uh, he yesterday he declared himself the number one environmental president. And he thinks he will outdo Roosevelt's uh, legacy in relationship to uh, to what what he perceives to be, you know, <clears throat> the environment, environmental accomplishments. So I just it's it, I would anticipate that he would answer the question that you posed less with uh, with reflection upon the party and the party's development over time and more with direct comparison to himself to Lincoln um, on issues of race and Roosevelt on issues of the environment, and he would see himself as superior to both. I'm, I'm just, uh, there you go. That, that So wait, we have to take a very brief break, but then we, I know you got right. more questions because you're prepared as the moderator of this debate. All right, more with Dr. Mark Caleb Smith in just a moment. We'll be right back. Continue my conversation with Dr. Mark Caleb Smith from Cedarville University. We are... Uh, imagining here for a moment that uh, that Mark is the moderator of an upcoming debate between President Trump and former Vice President Joe Biden, both of whom are contending to serve as the president of the United States in uh, in the next term. So, um, Mark, do you want to say anything in response to my answer to your Trump question? No, I think that's that's probably a direction that Mr. Trump would take. Um that wouldn't surprise me. You know, he clearly doesn't see himself as beholden to the Republican Party uh, in any way, I don't think. But you're right that he could highlight some commonality. Um, but sometimes that commonality comes from a very distorted sense of history, obviously. I mean, for him to compare himself to Abraham Lincoln is, is an argument that's just really difficult uh, for people, or at least for me, to, to take seriously. But I think rhetorically it makes sense, you know, and it makes sense for him to use of those comparisons and just sort of move forward and to achieve his own goals. Yeah, and then it gives Biden the opportunity to say, Mr. President, you're no Lincoln, or Mr. President, (laughs) you're no Roosevelt. Like, right? I mean, it does set Biden up for, um, you know, that's, I think ultimately what these debates have sadly become is opportunities for, you know, very brief uh, moments that will go viral. Instead of being substantive policy conversations where the American people can actually suss out who might serve us uh, more effectively as uh, the commander in chief and um, and on and on and on. All right. What uh, what other questions do you have for candidates Biden and Trump? Uh, I think I think with uh, Biden, to me, his one of his biggest vulnerabilities is on foreign policy and this is this question. Um, I think highlights exactly his his struggle here. Uh, so, Mr. Biden, you voted against the first Gulf War, which had broad national and international support and went well. Uh, you voted for the second Gulf War, which was a struggle and has not always achieved achieved its objectives. You voted against the troop surge in 2007, which eventually restored order in Iraq. In 2012, you belittled Mitt Romney's claim that Russia was a serious strategic threat. And you advised President Obama not to carry out the raid that killed Osama bin Laden. You were against President Trump's decision to take out Kasim Soleimani. So your track record on foreign policy appears to be on the wrong side of history. Every decision you wanted to make appears to be wrong in hindsight. Has your judgment changed or improved? 
And why should America trust you to be commander in chief? And mm. I think I think Biden, his record on foreign policy, you know, he was chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee um, and prides himself as an expert on foreign policy. Uh, but he really struggles, I think, to uh, connect that expertise to actual decisions he would want to make. Um, now, the problem, I think, is Americans don't care, honestly, a whole lot about foreign policy. Uh, I wish they did. And I wish they made that an important part of their voting calculus, but um, it doesn't seem they always do. Um, my guess is Biden would sort of default to Obama's answer on these kinds of questions, talk about soft power, talk about the need to sort of avoid military conflicts if possible, um, stress relationships with allies and how Trump has kind of frayed those relationships. I mean, he could give a credible answer, but uh, I'm not sure it'd be all that persuasive. So I might be tempted to um, highlight in a foreign policy conversation with Biden, I might be tempted to highlight China. Yeah. Um, just because I think it gives us some, as Christians, it gives us some opportunities to point to uh, the failure of the Obama administration to address human rights violations that were very, very apparent um, over their eight years in office. And, you know, and Biden certainly could have uh made steps in the direction of uh, that have been, you know, steps that have frankly been taken in the last four years to increasingly bind China in terms of uh, the way they stomp around on people's rights. Now, I realize that there's economic cost to that, and those are apparently not economic costs that Joe Biden is willing to bear. So those would be the that would be one foreign policy conversation I think would be interesting to press him on. Yeah, I, I agree. And I think uh, to some extent, both parties are vulnerable on China. They haven't really mm -hmm. developed a good policy in how to handle China. And President Trump, as you said, to his credit, uh, has at least recognized it as an issue. And you can argue about how he's done it, but he's at least tried to figure out a way to pressure China. All right, uh, Mr. Moderator, we have time for one more question. Okay. So with President Trump, and this is an easy one for him, I think, but I think it needs to be something put in the center of the discussion. Um, you claim that your experience as a business leader was excellent preparation for serving in the White House. Your first term has been marked by difficult relationships with the Department of Justice, the State Department, the Centers for Disease Control, the Food and Drug Administration, and even Congress itself. Do you still think political experience in a president doesn't matter? Um, now, I think the president would downshift pretty quickly to talking about the swamp. Yeah, I was just going to say the the response yeah. the response seems obvious. I came to drain the swamp. Yeah, there's no question about it. He's going to talk about him cutting deals and doing things like uh, the UAE and Israel agreement and things like that. And and again, he could make credible arguments there. Um, but I think I think pre President Trump has really struggled with how to how to manage the executive branch. Um, and he's going to claim it's the executive branch's fault. Uh, but I think Biden can certainly go after him on that response. You know, I think it's it's so challenging for uh, for any of us to know what goes on, uh, you know, on a day to day basis inside right. um, the White House, but inside the relationships then that the the White House and members of the president's staff have with other um, agencies and uh, and parts of the government, but. It does seem as if it's there's a bit of a dumpster fire every day, and it does seem as if they are constantly scrambling. Um, I mean, the latest thing just with the uh, DeJoy, who you know, I mean, I, right. I it, right. it is as if 
um, it is as if nobody is doing a lot of deep background on the people who come into uh, into serve. And the president's not well served when people are allowed to come in to serve <laughs> alongside him, who then are ultimately going to, you know, well, be, in, you know, <laughs> be found to have done things that right. um, were criminal. Um, because that just doesn't that doesn't help him. Doesn't help him to ultimately be found to have been surrounded by people who are criminals. I mean, that's that that is. If I'm on the other side of uh, of pointing things out, um, you know, I'm I'm trotting out mugshots of all yeah. of the people who have served alongside the president in this administration who who are now incarcerated. And that's a challenge. I think that is going to be an ongoing optics challenge. For the president, I do think that on foreign policy and life issues in particular, um, he's a really strong case to make. And Biden has no case to make on either one of those points. Um, but I think that the, the president has some challenges um, to face up to as well in terms of members of his administration that have not proven to have been maybe good hires. Fair? Yeah, no, I think that's fair. Um, I think it's fair, but I think it also highlights uh, President Trump's hard relationship with the Republican Party. You know, if he had mm-hmm. been a little bit more traditional, he could have brought in some more typical Republicans who might be a little bit more ready to step into these administrative roles. Yeah, who understood all the rules related to government. That's right. Exactly right. Yeah. And so yeah. that's that's kind of the struggle of running against the establishment. Yeah. All right. We're going to continue this conversation with Mark Caleb Smith the next time he comes on. Um, hey, thanks so much. This has been a joy. And thank you. It's always fun. We'll see you later. All right. Bye-bye. We'll be right back. You are already familiar with best-selling author Lisa Bevere. She's got a brand new book out. It's called Godmothers. And uh, it really invites us to embrace the older, wiser women to whom we can go and from whom we can learn. Strong women who would actually partner with us through life. Everybody needs one, Lisa contends. Uh, And drawing from her own life and biblical women and even the world of fairy tales, she's going to show us how to transform what we have now into, frankly, what God wants us to have, which is really strong relationships with one another as godly women. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. It's one of the most insidious traps parents fall into. Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. I'm talking about comparison. It's easy to look at someone else's family and use them as a measuring stick. They eat dinner together every night. They look like a Norman Rockwell painting. Your family's lucky if they grab a stale pizza before running out the door. The other kids never speak an unkind word. They're always obeying mom and dad. But your kids, of course, seem to be testing the boundaries all day long. Let me calm your nerves a little here. That other family, they're not as good as they look. It's not worth getting caught up in comparison. Get back to watching your own kids. They're exactly what God wants for you today. Looking to make positive changes in your family? Check out the helpful resources from Mark Gregston online at parentingtodaysteens.org. So 
I'm excited to be joined today by Lisa Bevere. I know that for most of you, she needs no introduction. For those of you for whom she does need an introduction, let me just encourage you to check out her website, lisabevere.com. I'm also going to invite you to Lisa's podcast, which is The Godmother with Lisa Bevere. And today she's joining us to talk about her book, which is for godmothers. Lisa, welcome to Mornings with Carmen. Carmen, I am so excited to be with you, and I'm super excited about talking all things Godmother. So let me just confess that I have been named officially as a Godmother in the past and utterly failed that particular child, but I feel like I function as a Godmother in other people's lives. So let's start with how are you defining the term? Well, I mean, first and foremost, you've taken the time to have a radio program. So I would say right off the bat, you're doing that and we're doing that together right now. So a godmother is not, I I wish there were fairy godmothers. It's not a real thing. I wish people could just show up and wave a wand and everything changes, but that is not the process that any of us are ever going to experience. But a godmother or a godfather Again, I'm half Sicilian. I'm not going to my mafia roots. They were something that the early church called spiritual parents. They were people that came alongside of others when they got born again. They often lost everything. They lost their family. They lost their community. They lost their finances. They lost their friends. And they would say, all right, I am personally taking responsibility for their growth. And they would be there at every major intersection, baptism, marriage. They would be there for them in seasons of hardship. And they would say, okay, I'm going to show you how to turn this hardship into something that gains strength for God's glory. And so God parents were people committed to your God growth. People committed to your God growth. I love that. Um, One of the things that I really appreciate about this entire conversation is that it plays on the familial nature of the church, of how the church is, by God's design, a family. That feels like a really integral part of this conversation. Absolutely. And, you know, if you glanced at the first uh, chapter, you will realize I was the most unqualified person for the position of being anything motherly or even godly, to be honest with you. I got born again after being a really great heathen for 21 years. I had never heard the gospel in my whole childhood, and I got born again and healed on my very first date with my husband. And he had shared the gospel with me. I was like, well, wow, why hasn't anybody told me this? This sounds really important. And I, you know, just started just, I said, this is my purpose. You know, I, I realized that Jesus had given his entire life for me. And, and I'm just going to be honest. I had been a loser in everything I'd ever tried. And I felt like that's, I just had no passion and I had no purpose. And as soon as I had that God intersection, then I all of a sudden felt like, oh my goodness, I have somebody that has a plan and a purpose for my life because I can't figure it out. And so started moving forward and got married to the man who led me to the Lord, John Bevere. We've been married for 38 years this October and had had a couple boys. And God started to talk to me uh, about ministering to women. And, and Carmen, I don't know if you've ever felt this way, but I was kind of like, I don't really like women. I really don't. 
get along with women. I like guys. I'm glad I'm having all boys. Women, they they say things they don't mean. They mean things they don't say. I I don't know. I don't I don't talk their language. I think maybe I am a man's brain and a woman's body. And I remember my husband saying, you know, I'm not comfortable with that. So I was, you know, crying out, God, you're putting me in this position to minister to women when I didn't get what I needed. And Mm. I remember he said to me, Lisa, I'm going to challenge you to be the woman that you wished you would have had. And that is who a godmother is. She is the woman that she wished she would have had. And you and I both know, Carmen, that people are always going to disappoint us. But that doesn't mean we don't pour out of our brokenness. And and when God challenged me on that, Carmen, I, I said, okay, that's like a joke. Like, I don't have anything to give. I don't know how to be that woman. I wish I would have had. He said, yeah, you do. Write it backwards. Everything you wish another woman would have been to you, you begin to be to the women around you. And, you know, at the time, I think I was maybe all of 29 or 30 years of age. But Carmen, I sat in a motel room and I wrote it down. I talked about how she would be by my side, not necessarily on my side, because I could be wrong. And God showed me this huge gap between the daughters and the mothers. And he said, I want, I want mothering, not mentoring. He said, mothers will lay down life to bring forth life but mentors tend to reproduce themselves. And you and I both know that we need the next generation to go further and farther than we have gone. So you've said so many things, um, Lisa, that I resonate with immediately. The mothering, not mentoring, that really rings my bell. The resonating with a sense of a call to ministry, but when I think about talking with women with whom I talk every morning, right, on this radio program, but the reality is, I know that it's a challenge for me to have friendships with women and to mentor younger women. Like, but when you call it mothering, I think I can do that. I mean, like, right? I can, I can get my heart and my mind around that. I can certainly write down the things that I wish I had had in a God mother person and or or set of people or array of individuals. But let me say this: because my audience has already met Addison, because they have already <laughs> uh, read Saints becoming more than Christians, everybody who's listening knows that you're a good mom. Like you're, you know, like, right, that you've already reproduced in the next generation, the kind of faith and faithfulness and curiosity about kingdom things and inquisitiveness about people and relationships. Like they've met Addison on here. So they, they know that you and John have done a really good job reproducing yourselves in the next generation. And that is what you're talking about. Godmothering is a process of reproduction, which means that I become the curriculum, which is why you say in the book, like you already know how to do this. Yeah. And, and, and it doesn't mean, it doesn't mean you have to know everything. You just need to know more than the person you're pouring into. And I just love, so here's the funny thing, Carmen, my demographic who reads my books, I'm 60. I kind of assumed it would be 40 to 60 year olds, but it's 24 to 35 year olds. Mm-hmm. And that is because they're looking for a mother. They're Mm -hmm. looking for somebody to help them navigate life. You know, there's an amazing quote by Jill Churchill. She says, there is no way to be a perfect mother. So let's just all take all the guilt off of every mother sitting out there saying, wait, no, I messed up. No way to be a perfect mother and a million ways 
to be a good one. And that is what we need to find. We need to say, okay, 15 year olds, you can pour into 12 year olds and you got 35 year olds, you can pour into those twenties. And then if you're 80, you can pour into whoever the heck you want to pour into because you have so much life lessons, but there is a gap. There is a gap between the way things are and the way they should be. There is a gap between the generations of the younger women and the older women. The younger women think the older women can't be bothered and the older women are imagining that they have nothing to give to the younger women. And I wanted to expose that we need one another. We have, we have multiple biblical examples of older women pouring into the younger women, even when they thought they had nothing. We see Naomi. She's like, I've lost everything. I have no husbands. I have no sons. I can't even reproduce fast enough to give you what you need. But she didn't understand that even in her bitter brokenness, she had a chance to bless. And when she blessed Ruth, she ended up getting a restoration for herself. You and I know the most healing thing we can do is love and bless and encourage other people. Joseph, he talked about the faithfulness of God when he'd never seen any of it himself. And those are the moments in our lives. We see Elizabeth, barren, you know, just people looking at her like, whoa, you know, they look okay, but they're barren. And then all of a sudden she gets pregnant and she goes into hiding. Carmen, no way. I wouldn't go into hiding. I'd be at the epicenter of the social thing. I'd be like, y'all, my husband can't talk and I'm pregnant. Y'all need to feel bad about wondering about my life. But she didn't do that. She understood that what she carried was more important than her personal affirmation. And we need women who will wake up and help the next generation, not criticize them, not label them, not call them entitled. And we need the younger women to say, all right, I'm going to take a chance on reaching out to an older woman who is maybe the mother I want to be or the wife I want to be or the businesswoman I want to be or the, the minister I want to be. And I'm going to ask her to pour into my life. And it doesn't have to be a 13-week Bible study. It just needs to be organic and we walk through life. I believe that God mothers help you find the marvelous in your mundane. They teach you that your faithfulness with the ordinary is what bursts the extraordinary in your life. I'm talking with Lisa Bevere. She is, among other things, the author of Godmothers, Why You Need One, How to Be One. We've got copies to give away. You can text the word book to 877-933-2484. We'll be right back. I am So rejoining my conversation now with Lisa Bevere, you can find her at lisabevere.com. You can also uh, check out her brand new book, Godmothers, Why You Need One, How to Be One. If you're interested in entering uh, the drawing we're having for the copies we have available, text the word book to 877-933-2484. All right, Lisa, you and I have talked a little bit about why we need one and even how to be one. Talk with us a little bit about when you're thinking about how to respond to a young woman who you know needs a godmother, like, is this something that you can offer? Or is this something that you have to be asked for? I think it's something that you can offer. I get a lot of young girls that say, I'd love to meet with you. And when I sit down with them, 
I ask the really scary question. I say, how can I serve you? Now that doesn't mean I'll automatically do exactly what they're asking, but you know, if they're like, hey, I want you to promote my book or whatever, I'm like, yeah, see, that's not relational. What I want is I want to speak into your life, not position you to speak in front of people. So let's talk about getting the core things right. So I always just say, how can I serve? How can I help you? What is your need in this moment? And I've intentionally gone after some young women I could see really struggling and hurting and just said, hey, I'm praying for you. How can I help you? And then you know what I do, Carmen? I keep it private. I don't put, I don't post on an Instagram. I don't say ministering to so-and-so. I don't do any of that. I want to be faithful. And then for the younger women, you know, I, <clears throat> I remember going through a marriage problem with my husband uh, about 25 years ago and I called somebody and they basically said, you know, uh, they were saying all these horrible things like men are all losers. You need to divorce him, blah, blah, blah. And I heard the Holy Spirit in the other ear saying, this person's been divorced twice. Why are you talking to them? Now, I'm not saying that a person that's been divorced twice can't give you good advice, but there was bitterness coming out. There was bitter waters coming out. And God said, you need to speak to somebody who's been through hardship who knows where you want to go. And so I actually called somebody who had been married three times, who was in love with her husband, had learned from all of her mistakes. So I'm not looking for perfection. And I said, I need your help. And so I think that we need to be women that are willing to help one another. And then this generation, there is so much, so much in this generation, but they sometimes are frozen because they have so many options. And godmothers will come alongside of them and say, I need you to just get moving forward because you are gonna have a hard time missing God if your heart is pure. But if you don't move, you're guaranteed not to hit any target. That is so wise. That is so wise. I think getting to the place where I can say to a more mature Christian woman, I need your help. Like even at this stage of life, that's so important, right? Well, it's so you know, important I, to always be at the stage absolutely. where we can say to someone else, I need your help. And to be the kind of person to whom others could say that and then be prepared to serve them in exactly the way uh, that you have framed it, which is, you know, speak into their life. That's really what people need more than anything else. We need community right now more than any other time. And, you know, who knew when I was writing this book that we were going to find ourselves in a season of isolation where the worst of the worst is coming out and the best of the best is coming out. And so, you know, I spent an entire chapter responding to the over 600 questions I got. I didn't answer all of them, but there was a theme of what I wish I had known when I was 25 or 35. And I think that we need to be those women who, even if it's by Zoom, which of course we're all so tired of right now, even if it's by Zoom or by phone, to be authentic connections and to value, value community like we've never valued it before. Okay, can I ask one final question? And thank you for being so gracious with your time. Who, I need, I need an introduction to the really cute fluffy dog on lisabevere.com. Oh my gosh. She's the best dog I've ever had. She, I can, I can tell her to sit, put a treat on her nose and she will not eat it until I say release. And I mean, she's smart. She's sweet. She, she's, is she a, a doodle of some kind? She is, but she's mixed with the soft, uh, soft haired wheat and terrier. So she's, so she's got cute. some 
Oh my gosh. I mean, I can't even, I can't even tell you. My husband's like, I think you like the dog better than me. And I it's said, it's okay. At times, at times. It's okay. It's okay. All right. You guys got to go to lisabevere.com if for nothing else to see the dog, he, he or she is really cute. She, uh, yes. she is a, just adorable. Lisa Bevere, thank you so much. The new book is Godmothers. All right. I've lost the sub, I've lost the subhead because I'm looking at the dog. Give us the subhead of the book. <laughs> Why you need one, how to be one. Amen. All right, Lisa Bevere, thank you so much for your generosity of spirit um, and for this this book and these thoughts. It's been a blessing to talk with you. I know. I feel like we're new friends. (laughs) I love it. All right, we'll be right back. So did you grow up with a godmother? Maybe you are a godmother. I grew up with a godmother. Her name was Julia. Julia is now with the Lord. Um, she lived a beautiful life. I remember uh, her lasagna with particular affection and her blueberry pies. also remember the smell of her house. Um, I remember that um, Julia almost always had an open Bible in view. It was on the kitchen table, or it was next to the end of the couch, or it was on the coffee table, or it was at her bedside, or it was um, on the kitchen counter. Um, And she had a particular fondness for a shade of blue that I would have a hard time even describing, but, you know, I'll just call it Aunt Julia Blue. I'm wondering if you had a godmother, what impact and effect that person had on your life, and if you didn't have a godmother... Whatever that means or looks like for you, what would it mean today to shepherd the heart of another woman in such a way that she would consider you her wise, godly guide, a godmother in in that sense of the term? And if you still need one, go get one. Go talk to a wise, older woman, more mature woman in the faith and just say, I need a godmother. I need a godly woman in my life to instruct and encourage and counsel. Mentoring is kind of intimidating, but godmothering, you know, that sounds like the shepherding of a heart. I think we could all do that. All right, we all need one. We need to all be one or each be one. I got a whole nother hour of Mornings with Carmen up next. We're going to talk a little economics and business with Bill English in the first half, and then we're going to talk real real racial reconciliation, the colors of culture, the beauty of diverse friendships, in in the second half of the next hour. We'll be right back. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at myfaithradio.com.